Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. The next couple weeks are going to be crazy in the sports world. Round three of the basketball playoffs, round two of hockey playoffs, regular season baseball, a golf major kicks off this weekend, tennis major kicks off in a couple weeks. There is so much going on, and BetOnline is the place to stop for all of your props, odds, bets, parlays, and more over this next crazy month of May. Use our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus when you sign up, bet online where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of The Take It Easy Podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live, because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is May 19th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever you may be listening. It is 100 bleeping degrees where I am right now in Northern California, so I am sweating my ass off right now, but we're going to come at you with another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast. If you want more fantabulous episodes of the podcast, and I don't mean to shamelessly plug off the front end, but I'm pretty damn proud of our work, you can check out our episode we did with LeGarrett Blunt on Tuesday. We did an episode with Drew Davenport talking about the legal issues around the uh, NFL players Jerry Judy and Dalvin Cook yesterday. We had a fun NBA draft lottery show where we got to celebrate. That was really fun. Lottery is the favorite day of the year. Got to check that out. Got to check out Chris Cluey, who joined the show on Friday last week. Bob Nightingale of USA Today joined the show on Monday last week. We've had some banger guests here, like a year, I mean, in previous years, a year's worth of guests in like the span of two weeks. So check that out for sure. Um, today's episode is with one of our old friends, Juju Talk Sports, joining us. He's got a Celtics and heat breakdown with our friend Mo Murphy, too. Uh, I know the series started yesterday, and we recorded this without knowing that Al Horford was going to catch COVID and that Marcus Smart was going to be out for multiple games for the Celtics, but still, it's a it's a Celtics heat analysis talk before game two. We're recording this before we figure out the 
Mavericks and Warriors result, although there was a photo circulating that may or may not have been from today of Luka Doncic drinking a beer at a uh, local Bay Area restaurant, but that was kind of fun to just have Luka circulating the internet, just chilling before game one. Anyways, I don't know what the result is of that. We're going to talk about baseball, we're going to talk about soccer here in the A Block, it's the dull se- we're going to talk about basketball, but it's the dull season of football. Juju and I have got you covered by talking about NFL relocation in the middle of May because that's an NFL topic that we can hit you with here in the midst of the down period of all down periods in the NFL, where last year we tried to convince ourselves it wasn't the down period of the NFL by focusing three weeks of content on Julio Jones getting traded. So anyways, we're going to start off today by going against what I normally do when it comes to this podcast. And I'm going to break the rule just a little bit today because it's larger macro level issues and also it's kind of just a story of the day thing going on here. So there are two topics I wanted to talk about here in the A block. One is Juan Soto, the superstar 23-year-old for the Washington Nationals, who it was reported by Buster only the Nationals are contemplating trading before the deadline this year which would be, you know, maybe the precedent of Miguel Cabrera in 2007, but in in the modern NFL or the modern MLB construct, never ever seen something like this happen. The second thing I want to talk about is the US women's national team in their well, I guess US soccer as a whole negotiating with the labor, you know, in collective bargaining with the US men's team and the US women's team, negotiated a pooling of money and distributing equal pay between men's soccer and women's soccer, the basic numbers on that is that all team activities will pay the same to U.S. men and U.S. women. Prize money was a gap between the $13 million that the U.S. men would make if, per se, the United States men make the round of 16 in the World Cup, they would make $13 million. If the U.S. women win their entire tournament, they would make $7 million. And so there's a pay gap there and just like the base level of advancing because of how much money is invested in men's soccer. And so pool money, prize money is going to be pooled together from international competition and distributed evenly amongst the men and women's team, which is one of the biggest successes in terms of gender equality in any, it might be the biggest success in terms of gender equality in any sport in America or the world, which is crazy to think about that this, I mean, Yes and no, it's a huge victory, and and the part that I am always afraid of when talking about women's sports is that, one, I am a man, two, I don't talk enough about women's sports except when it's issues that pertain to women specifically, and I'm afraid of becoming part of the problem in that way where I don't talk enough about the actual double WNBA product and the WNBA product on the floor and more talk about for example, the, the NWSL had their uh, a sexual assault scandal for a generation within their sport. It had multiple coaches getting fired, ultimately led to the, the commissioner of the league resigning, and there was threat of possible collapse of the, the league and then a restarting of the league and all that stuff. So that was a topic we talked about in October for 30 minutes. We talked about the, the Brittany Griner situation a little bit, and we talk about this when it's an equal pay situation in women's sports. And don't really talk about the product itself. And I'm always afraid of dabbling in these waters. And yet at the same time, this is such a, this is a, my entire lifetime fight. The, the women were the women's world cup champions of 1999 
which was the famous team with Abby Wambach and uh, who was it? Becky Ham. I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember the name of, of her, but um, the the famous video the famous video of the person who kicks the game winner and then takes off her shirt and then it's a celebration with the famous photo. All of that. There's a really good documentary that was done by Amazon. I wish I had watched it, but anyways, the whole that was a fight that began in 1999 for equal compensation because women's sports all of a sudden had a national platform. Continued by the 2013 team and the 2017 teams, that was kind of like a captivation of the entire national audience. It was the, the highest rated soccer game in America for I think 10 plus years when the women were playing in the championship game in 2013 for the women's World Cup. And then having, or maybe it was 2015, 2015, I think it was 20, is it 2013 or 2015? One of the two, but the, the point being that the women's world cup had a massive audience, uh, for the, um, the, the 2013 women's world cup, or I guess it was 2015. Now that I think about it, the 2015 women's world cup was a turning point because all of the stars on that team ended up becoming national star type players whether it be Alex Morgan who one thing about Alex Morgan that I find fascinating is Alex Morgan now plays for the San Diego expansion team for the National Women's Soccer League and I'm stunned that that wasn't talked about more and I guess in the grand scheme of things it should have been talked about more in that way I was just stunned that the the best female soccer player for a generation plays in my hometown and I don't hear very many people talking about that fact because Alex Morgan is a national type of star Crystal Dunn is a national type of star for the U.S. women's national team and obviously we can go down the line to Abby Wambach or Carly Lloyd or all of the people on the team you know you can keep going but the point still stands like the U.S. women's soccer team is fighting for years and years to and led by Megan Rapino at that at the um, championship parade in what was it 2019 I want to say the, the Megan Rapino famous championship parade and the head of U.S. soccer gets up on the podium and everyone's chanting equal pay and he actually acknowledges the crowd. It was really interesting to see that 20 years of work ends up culminating in this moment. That's something that progress looks like it's just strange that progress was generational and moved as slow as it did and yet progress ultimately was achieved now the next step is take it a step further to increase the revenue of women's sports so that women's sports don't have to pool money with the men's sports all of a sudden they can have an equal footing and that involves investing actual money from the consumer into women's sports. It's why I try my best to pay full price for women's sports products. I have a Sabrina Ionescu jersey in there. I try to go to NWSL games, but there's not really one around here. There used to be a WNBA team up here, but the point still stands like if you're going to invest money in sports, investing full prices in women's sports are a really great way to build that up. I saw um, a bunch of celebrities led by Natalie Portman and Serena Williams and a bunch of people were starting a soccer team in Los Angeles that was specifically being advocates to the LGBTQ plus community and specifically advertising to people who have been excommunicated from a lot of men's sports and also women's sports for, for a time, but especially men's sports. It's interesting how that begins to evolve, and I don't talk about this stuff enough, and it makes me feel a little bit icky about jumping in and mansplaining how this situation plays out. It's just a major accomplishment that you get 
equal pay for men's and women's sports. It, again, like I said, there's not really a precedent for this type of situation in any sports, in any global sports league where you have equal compensation for male and female athletes, which is crazy to think about. But women's sports have only existed for 40 years, which is weird to think about considering the, the tight, I mean, the NFL is celebrating 100 years and the, you know, sports are still the number one entertainment vehicle for America and women's sports just had like a 70 year setback compared to the rest of sports and so the economies are trying to be built the economies are trying to become sustainable over time and it's not the it's not the investment that should be placed into these leagues because there's a lot of cultural there's a lot of cultural and stereotypical buildups over the past 50 to 100 to really 300 years going back to the beginnings of the patriarchy in America that have to be undone in terms of people changing their attitudes around women's sports and the best advice I ever got around that is simply don't be antagonistic towards women's sports in that way so it's really cool that equality involves taking money away from men and pooling it so that the women can get the resources that ultimately will close the gap in terms of revenue between men and women it's it's probably not going to be entirely perfect for another 50 years in terms of men and women's soccer or men's and women's basketball or men's and women's tennis, especially because men's and women's tennis is across many different countries and it's, uh, you know, tournaments that extend from America to France to England to Australia and Canada and all the way on down. As difficult as the sport can be with international politics and things like that and collective bargaining and weird things like that, it's a step in the right direction where at least you're seeing the progress have actual gains and the progress has to keep being fought for. But by the by pooling money and investing it into the women's team, you can close the revenue gaps because all of a sudden people will realize the excellence of the product is not determined by the gender of the athlete. And this is a major step in that direction. So that's the point around that. I, I gave a little bit there. I don't want to mansplain too much further. Let's transition here somewhat awkwardly into Major League Baseball, the sport that is not the most antagonistic to women. It's up there, though. So Juan Soto is the superstar for the Washington Nationals. The Washington Nationals won the World Series in 2019. Their star player, Anthony Rendon, ended up leaving to go to the Anaheim Angels. They re-signed Steven Strasburg to a big contract. He's only started like 14 games since getting that big contract. The Nationals missed the playoffs in 2020. And last year, they ended up trading Max Scherzer, who Hall of Fame pitcher, best pitcher for a generation, who they had for five years coming from Detroit. They gave him a $200 million contract when he first joined over with the Washington Nationals. They traded him and Trey Turner and a bunch of other people as a trade that signified this is a rebuild. We are two years removed from our championship. We are going to miss the playoffs for the second year in a row. We are tearing down the team, gutting the team, and trying to build it back up. And Juan Soto's the building block of that team, except it's a sport where we're learning now, one, that teams are incentivized to lose games even more because it takes long-term rebuilds to build things back up. Two, if you want to skip that rebuilding part, because the, the contracts in baseball are especially watered down. Like, in the NBA, the minimum contract for someone drafted in the first round can be 
anywhere from like five million dollars to ten million dollars in well I guess it goes down to like three million in the NBA but in baseball on your first three years of your contract wherever you get drafted your base salary against the salary cap is like six hundred to eight hundred thousand dollars like baseball is really good at limiting the contracts on there to the point where like the Baltimore Orioles this year their average contract for a player is about 1.8 million dollars I don't think there's a single player on the Miami Heat other than maybe Caleb Martin making 1.8 million dollars or less the minimum contract in the NFL now is like 850 thousand dollars so same idea in Major League Baseball or same idea in uh, these other sports where baseball, their their minimum salaries are much lower and extend for longer periods of time because essentially the first three years of your contract, you make like $2.1 million as a baseball player. So Juan Soto, I'm sorry, the, the, the young contract suggests that like drafting players at the bottom is beneficial. We're also learning that only about 10 teams actually try and compete every single year in baseball. There are 10 teams every year you can guarantee to be bad. Then there are like the case of the St. Louis Cardinals, where the St. Louis Cardinals are, are the, the closest thing to a middle class that baseball has. Sometimes they're going to miss the playoffs. Two years in a row they've lost in the wild card, and some years they're going to fuck around and win the NL Central. And they that's the closest thing to a middle class that exists in baseball. The Boston Red Sox move in spurts. Boston Red Sox are like, win a World Series, win 80 games. Win a World Series, win 80 games. And they're doing it again this year. Toronto, same idea. And you can go on down the list of middle class in baseball. There's about 10 teams that spend exorbitant amounts of money and essentially can buy themselves victories. In the grand scheme of things, the Dodgers spend so much money that they guarantee themselves 100 wins every single year. The Mets are getting to a place where they can spend so much money with Steve Cohen that they're guaranteed 90 wins every single year, which gets them in the ballpark for the playoffs. Last year, they missed the playoffs because it was a catastrophic collapse at the end of the season. This year, they're probably going to win the National League East. If they don't win the National League East, they'll probably host a wild card game. Um, the same idea with the Phillies and the Padres and Toronto right now. There's a bunch of teams trying to spend a whole lot of money, and the smart teams like Tampa Bay and Milwaukee are able to, like, they're just smarter than everyone else in doing the analysis. And Houston and the Red Sox and the Yankees are always spending three times as much money as the teams, even in the, in the lower class, but sometimes twice as much as even teams in the middle class. In baseball, there's such a discrepancy in payrolls in baseball that doesn't quite exist in, say, the NFL or the NBA, which are also salary cap sports. So we're learning that tanking and, and value players can be a more efficient strategy. More teams are tanking than ever before, which means that you can buy yourself a certain number of victories if you're willing to spend exorbitant amounts of money and not prioritize profit over all else. And we're learning that a singular superstar does not impact winning in baseball the same way that it impacts it in other sports. And so in the case of Juan Soto, from the Washington Nationals standpoint, the Washington Nationals are saying, we don't have the resources to pay Juan Soto $40 million a year for 12 years 
and be able to build a sustainable winner around Juan Soto. And if he gets traded at 23 years old, like let's let's not mince here. Like Juan Soto's having the worst season of his career so far this year, and he's still one of the 10 most valuable players in the National League. If Juan Soto gets traded, it will be the largest trade package in the history of Major League Baseball. If the Washington Nationals are doing their job correctly, they could command Alex Rodriguez to the Yankees' levels of returns. And remind you that Robinson Cano got traded, uh, or sorry, Robinson Cano almost got traded in that trade for the Yankees to go that way. And then Miguel Cabrera, Clayton Kershaw almost got traded to the Miami Marlins in that deal if he had gone to the Dodgers. So it's really interesting to see the dynamics of of this Juan Soto trade. And by the way, hearing the Padres included in the possible teams interested, just just a great little pick-me-up that I needed on this fine day. And so it's really interesting to see how this plays out because from a national standpoint, I would argue that you've won a World Series You're years away, probably a decade away from competing for another one. Why would you put yourself at the bottom of the sport and not give people a reason to show up? And the argument there is that even if people don't show up to the games with television dollars and revenue sharing, you're still making profit that you don't have to pay $38 million of to Juan Soto. I can understand the argument that Juan Soto is not going to generate an extra $38 million in revenue per year. That's not the point of the argument. The point of the argument is Juan Soto makes your baseball team invariably better and is the type of player you wait decades to, or at least a decade or more to try and acquire. Now the Nationals got lucky and they got Bryce Harper immediately followed by Juan Soto. Like, that was just a lucky break that the Nationals got. The Nationals are in a place where, and I don't know how the contract negotiations are going down, they're saying this is the way to jumpstart instead of spending three or four years at the bottom waiting for draft picks to develop. Let's get AAA and AA players who are top prospects right now using Juan Soto as an asset. And this isn't like the NBA where or the NFL where trading a star player ends up changing the value years and years down the road it's not like that it it does shift things a little bit where we've seen with Mike Trout and Shohei Otani like the Angels can't even sniff the playoffs now they'll probably make the playoffs this year after eight consecutive missed seasons Mike the last time they made the playoffs Mike Trout was 23 years old Mike Trout's now 31 or about to be 31 Mike Trout is the old dude (laughs) in baseball now and I can't believe I've lived long enough to see that now and I'm only 20 years old Mike Trout was the wonder kid and now he's kind of the old dude whose body is breaking down in baseball it's so freaking weird but it's the it's the science of like you can't just spend your way to victory you have to have the combination of young players and star players and maybe Kiebert Ruiz and maybe Josiah Gray who are the two stars they got in the Max Scherzer and Trey Turner trades maybe that will help jumpstart the process for Washington Washington's banking on those guys plus more prospects for Juan Soto and some major league ready talent and some draft picks in this year's draft and some draft picks from last year's draft will help jumpstart this thing four to five years from now. And I'd argue four to five years of Juan Soto might be just as fun as four to five years of trying to build up a winner again. But I'm not the one watching Washington Nationals games on a week-to-week basis. I'm just the one hoping that he gets traded to the San Diego Padres. 
and it generates interest in baseball when baseball regular season doesn't matter. I laughed at the at Bleacher Report on the Friday, the day after opening day, they had an article on the front page that was one trade for every baseball team. It's never too early to start thinking about trades. And I yelled back, you know what it is? I think it is too early to talk about trades. But if people aren't watching the baseball games and there's no stakes on regular season games anyways, you got to generate storylines somehow. The media's got to find ways to generate storylines somehow, and if you don't have access to the players and can't humanize the players in the way you once did, do it through trades. Changing players and changing teams is something that's incredibly interesting. Might as well try and generate storylines that way. Juan Soto being traded would be interesting because as much as we talk about Machado getting traded or Scherzer getting traded or Justin Verlander getting traded or Garrett Cole years ago, like... This would be the biggest trade in the history of baseball. If 23-year-old Juan Soto gets traded by the Washington Nationals, that might be the greatest trade in the history of baseball. He is second in the MVP voting last year, fifth in the MVP voting in 2020, rookie of the year, World Series champion, by the way, the four-hitter on the World Series champion in 2019. Like, it, it would be ridiculous if Juan Soto ended up getting traded. It'd be the equivalent of Miguel Cabrera getting traded by the Marlins, which was 15 years ago. And that's really the only precedent you can find for such a move. And even Cabrera was traded at 24 years old. Juan Soto's 23, and the Nationals might trade him. And it would be a shit show through all of July if Juan Soto was declared on the trading block. Because there's at least 20 teams who would trade for him, like, right now. And say, like, a stipulation of the trade is Juan Soto gets a $400 million-plus contract, I can think of 10 teams that would line up to make that move right now. And by the way, one of them should be the Houston Astros. 10 teams I could give you that would line up to give Juan Soto a $400 million contract, plus trading away maybe the largest trade haul in the history of Major League Baseball. Is it going to build a champion? Not individually, with the core that a lot of these teams already have, like the Padres. Oh my god, could you like the Padres and Blue Jays being connected? Could you imagine Juan Soto and Vlad Jr.? Could you imagine Tatis Machado and Juan Soto? Oh, it would be so great. So great. It would be so freaking great. Ten teams, I tell you, would line up to trade for Juan Soto, even if they're dramatically overpaying for him. They will still make the move for Juan Soto. Beginning now. It's not often that a politician gives us a headline in sports, but that's exactly what happened when Mayor Eric Johnson opened his mouth. Eric Johnson tweeted out, the answer is Dallas when responding about where the NFL should look to relocate. Why? We're about to pass the Chicago Metro and become the number three Metro in the U.S., which would make us the largest U.S. Metro without two teams. Football is king here. Dallas needs an expansion team, and we would be able to sustain two NFL teams better than L.A. and New York. So that's to take that parting shot at Los Angeles in this tweet. But the question is, does he have a point? Kyle Ledbetter, if the NFL decided to relocate, is Dallas a viable option? 
Yes. I don't know if they're the first option, but yeah, sure. I think that they definitely could sustain two teams. I mean, it'll never happen just because the Dallas Cowboys will just, Jerry Jones has too much power within the NFL to let that happen. And at the same time, yeah, they'd totally be viable the same way that other major cities in the US would be viable. Like even Chicago could theoretically have another team. The NFL is in an interesting place because the NFL would theoretically prefer, if we're, if we're doing this in the purest capitalistic sense, like the purest, like how can we get the most dollars possible? They'd prefer to put all their teams in like seven, eight, nine, ten cities. And the thing is, like, not every city can sustain an NFL team. And so they find these weird real estate places in like Cincinnati and Buffalo and Jacksonville. The NFL finds weird cities to put. And all sports leagues do this because when expansion happened in the 90s, they kind of had to find new cities to put them in. And like these cities were blossoming and all this different type of stuff. And the leagues wanted to grow as a whole. So, yeah, when the NFL was originally decided where teams went it wasn't necessarily with the idea being where can we make the most money it was a lot of teams that got grandfathered in because they had money in the 1930s they had money in the 1940s they had money in the 1950s and were interested in building a stadium with public financing was another big part of guaranteeing an expansion team in the 70s and 80s and that, which is how you get a team in like Tampa again is a weird place to put an NFL team the difference is obviously now the NFL is more deliberate on where they decide to put a team or put a game like it's no coincidence that we have multiple London games now each year. It's not a coincidence that we have games in Mexico. The NFL is thinking next. There's one in Germany this year too. The NFL is thinking big picture. They would love to expand the game of football to a broader audience across the world. That's their all-time goal. But this brings up the interesting question on when we can expect expansion, when we can expect relocation. There's a lot of cities that have been vying for NFL teams for years, but it has just never become a reality for multitude of reasons, including leases, including agreements to stay with a city, um, whatever owners own a team at that particular moment in time, what teams are up for sale? What is that team's legacy in that city? Like, for example, technically Green Bay probably shouldn't own an NFL <laughs> team. But the fact that they've had so much sustained success in Green Bay, Wisconsin, secures that the Packers will never leave the city of Green Bay. <laughs> Green Bay is equivalent what I like to call the Amish of the NFL, which is they could have built a dome stadium in Milwaukee and people were so adamant it has to be Lambeau Field and it has to be the history of that, that they renovated the whole stadium at basically the cost of a new one. One of my favorite memes that I have seen talking about the history of the league, talking about the history of the game as everyone's clowning the commander's new name. Meanwhile, Green Bay, the Packers, is just sitting there for the last hundred years. <laughs> I still believe, I still believe that Milwaukee and Wisconsin taxpayers in the 1990s had decided to build that dome stadium in downtown Milwaukee for the Packers. They would have won six more championships. Like you got the two greatest gunslinging quarterbacks of the last 30 years, possibly in the NFL in Aaron Rodgers and Brett Favre. And you chose literally the worst place ever for them to play, given the the, the style of football that they want to play. And hey, Aaron Rodgers <laughs> just needed to be as good as Jimmy Garoppolo and he might have had a ring last year. No, block field goal, block punt. We're not talking about that. Anyways, relocation and, and where would expansion. you move an NFL team? 
If you could, um, president of the world, Kyle Ledbetter, well, which NFL uh, city is going to get? Well, hold on, hold on. If I were the NFL, what I would do, or if I am am someone who is just gets to pick an NFL team, I'm giving you Bruce Almighty powers. Well, this is this is unfair to ask me because this is a perfect conversation for me. I had Fair? my heart ripped out, Fair? stolen, and stabbed as a child, <laughs> as a San Diego sports fan living in the six one nine as a child. The most formative moment of my entire childhood was January of two thousand seventeen, when the Chargers ripped my heart out, moved to Los Angeles, and we threw eggs at the building in San Diego. So, if you're asking about that, I'm putting a team right smack in San Diego, not for my sake but for all the great people of San Diego who deserve a goddamn football team. Anyway, here's, here's my question to you. Is it a new team or is it the Chargers that X that's coming back with that 2 a.m. text? Like, what you doing? Dean Spanos owns the team. We don't want your godforsaken team. If he sells the team to someone else, then then we'll take him back. But so we don't the want- Chargers allowed back. Spanos is not. Gotcha. I mean, the Chargers are just laundry, right? You can create an expansion team and call them the Chargers, and they're technically the Chargers, but just get Dean Spanos out of there. Yeah, but I could see how fans still get attached to a specific name or laundry, as we call it. Obviously, we talk about the Cleveland Browns and that situation whenever they became the Baltimore Ravens, but we still treat the current Cleveland Browns as the old Cleveland Browns. It's all relative. It's same city, same name. I can consider it the same team. Okay. So to, to the point about the larger relocation, because I just have a personal vendetta for San Diego. So Okay. The, the, talk about the dream. Talk about where you would go if you're the NFL. Your perspective okay. and the NFL's perspective. So the NFL back in 2006-ish, when the when the league was really becoming a corporation, like we've instituted a salary cap, we're doing all this stuff, et cetera, et cetera. You know, every team's getting close to being worth a billion dollars, television contracts exploding, et cetera. They said, similar to the NBA in the 90s, the best way to expand revenue is to branch out internationally, is to expand the game globally, because there's all these untapped markets in different countries. And so one of the ideas that came forward was, let's put a team in Europe. And they tried it with NFL Europe, like as a, as a test league, as a beta league. They created NFL Europe, like a, a CFL type of league or a, a, a USFL. Stay tuned, Slump Busters may have someone from NFL Europe history. Future episode. Yes. Plug good tease. It's a good tease. So they tried to create NFL Europe as a beta test. And then they're like, what if we put a team there full time? And then they realized the costs are just too much is that technology has not evolved fast enough to, to move someone eight hours across the Atlantic Ocean to put a team there. We just we can't the same way that like in the 1600s, people couldn't afford to travel to America. That's basically what the NFL's version of that is. So they do that thing. They talk about the Jaguars. Then they decide, where can we relocate? Los Angeles, Las Vegas. Those are the two places that need NFL teams. They took three teams away from our beloved and they they moved them away. So if you're now with the NFL, you can't quite go to Europe, but you've got four or five NFL games a year. They're building out a full NFL schedule in Europe and you have the one game in Mexico. The next place to move is whatever the next largest city that doesn't have an NFL team is, which... 
maybe Mexico City. Mexico City has a slightly larger population. It's a little further of a move, but Mexico City, Toronto, if you want to tap into the Canada market, you could potentially go there. I think most of the American cities are tapped out though, right? The state of New York just paid like $700 million to build the Bills a new stadium. So like Buffalo's got a stadium with a lot of money. I think most of the American cities are kind of tapped out on teams. Maybe like a, a San Antonio or Austin, Texas, or just put the team right in the middle. Like you talked about that one time with the soccer team where they, they try and put the stadium halfway between Austin and San Antonio. So you can get both people traveling long distances. Maybe that works, but I know Austin already has a professional team with the University of Texas who lost to Kansas this year. Well, as the resident Texan, I have to plead my case that I actually agree with Mayor Eric Johnson in respect that I do think that Texas is the next viable location for an NFL relocation or expansion. As you mentioned, I would have personal bias towards Austin, Texas. Make it easy on me. Make it easy for me to go check out an NFL game. But San Antonio has been on the short list for a very long time. Going back to Hurricane Katrina, the Saints had legitimate thoughts of moving to San Antonio right around when that whole situation happened. Certainly the Superdome was taking the brunt of that storm after the refugee crisis that was created there. The Saints did have a cherished history now that they do now. Their, their history in the past was for being perennial losers, for being one of the NFL's worst run organizations. And that shifted after Drew Brees landed in New Orleans and suddenly the Saints had a history. Again, we're talking about like the Green Bay thing. If Green Bay wasn't as successful as a team as they are now, they probably wouldn't be in Green Bay, Wisconsin anymore. That would probably have just been something that would have happened when the NFL was like, okay, we have a shitty team in Green Bay. Which major U.S. city can we move them to? That was almost the Saints situation because we talk about it now with the Pelicans. The Pelicans aren't a successful franchise. Let's just move them because New Orleans clearly can't work. New Orleans clearly can't have a basketball team. People were thinking New Orleans clearly couldn't have a football team. They thought the biggest Louisiana football team was LSU until the Saints changed that narrative. So you look at struggling teams across the NFL. Uh, we've questioned Jacksonville's long-term viability. Obviously, they don't have a track record of winning. If they ever did, I do think that Jacksonville is quickly becoming a city in a state in which a lot of people are desiring to move towards great weather, not the worst metropolitan area to try and navigate through. Jacksonville has some latency potential. I just think at this point they have bad ownership with the cons which has shown with a lot of the roster building, the coaching staff, the front office decision-making. I, I think that the cons might be the long-term reason why they don't work in Jacksonville. Uh, the Chargers are still trying to figure it out. They have the quarterback now, but Los Angeles fans still haven't embraced them. And the better the Rams become, the more the Rams take control of that city, I think it's going to be harder for the Chargers to ever really find a foothold in Los Angeles because even in their best years, behind the Niners, behind the Raiders, they're still the fourth or fifth best or most popular professional sports team in Los Angeles. So they have the possibility to move. And will we see an expansion? I guess that's the next phase of that. Are there enough good players to facilitate an expansion team? Are there enough good professional <laughs> I'm pro I'm pro the European soccer model of relegation that you can just relegate teams at a certain point and, and then you have to stay out of the bottom three or four this is a slight possibility with the NFL starting to embrace these XFL and USFL leagues, they wanted the XFL to work a couple of years ago because the XFL was recreated with Vince McMahon at the helm, was supposed to be somewhat of a feeder league 
to the NFL, but COVID had different ideas killing that iteration. This USFL, they've worked in partnership with the NFL and the new XFL starting under Dwayne The Rock Johnson in 2023 also has similar ideas. So if there was ever an opportunity to incorporate the idea of relegation or a football minor league, this is probably your window of time where the NFL is at its peak of popularity. We obviously, hell, we're talking about in the offseason. We're talking about things oh, that yeah. are more hypothetical. We're not even talking about the games. And I think that that's only a good thing for the NFL. The schedule drops tomorrow and it's going to be the biggest news thing of the day. <laughs> I, I will say that it's, um, I want relegation to happen. Relegation is never, ever going to happen because the owners have created a system where you can be terrible and still get gigantic but profits. It's why can change if the dollar amount is there. And if, of course, we do have more calls from the public or the viewers or the spectators. Yes. If people start talking with their, their money, like their viewing money, obviously we're seeing boycotts for the Oakland A's and how terrible their team. We're seeing boycotts in Cincinnati for the Reds. If we saw a team that was truly that terrible, luckily for the NFL, also it's just the style of play for those athletes, makes it harder for the athletes themselves to tank. Front offices have to be very deliberate in their moves that they really want to lose games. And mm-hmm. it's even in your best years, your best years of being awful are still hard to be truly awful in the NFL because uh, we have a situation like Miami a couple of years ago, right? Where they're purposely trying to lose games or perceived as trying to lose games, trading Minka Fitzpatrick. And you have players, veterans like Orion Fitzpatrick, who's, you know, I got to save my career. I got to do what I got to do to get wins in the NFL. So they make it harder for you to do your job in that respect. Uh, the, N- the NBA is obviously a lot easier to do this because it's mm-hmm. just like, well, I'll put my best player out on the court for 20 minutes a game. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Jaguars are, are the best team in terms of relocation before expansion, because yeah. I think the Jaguars are waiting for those, those travel costs to go down to Europe. As soon as we improve the technology, they might move. I should throw in here why again, I think Texas is a logical move is you look at the other pro leagues, you look at the MLB, you look at the NBA, obviously the NBA has three NBA teams in Texas, got the little Texas triangle going on between Houston, Dallas and San Antonio. Uh, The MLB has also floated the idea of finding a third MLB team to kind of had that little Texas triangle and the NFL, if they're legitimately having that thought, San Antonio would make a lot of sense because it's not just Austin that's rapidly expanding. San Antonio, according to the Wall Street Journal, was the top place to move in terms of lifestyle, cost of living, mm-hmm. all these number of factors. I've been to San Antonio a couple of times. It's fine. There's a lot of open area. So certainly if you're talking about building an NFL stadium, you do have the infrastructure in place to be able to do it. You do have a lot of cattle ranches that if you buy up those landowners, I don't think they're going to really complain. And obviously they do love their football. So it, it, the question that a lot of people are pushing back on, it's Cowboys country, right? So anything you do, any franchise <laughs> you start there, you're t- trying to convert Cowboys fans. I don't think you're really trying to do that. And it's really going to come down to the success or failures of the team because I, I think over the last 10 years, I have seen Texans fans become relevant because the Texans had a run where they were actually good. They had good players. They were making it in the playoffs. So we started to see that fan base develop. We started to see some JJ Watt jerseys. We started to see some, um, Andre Johnson jerseys, Arian Fosters. So we're starting to see those fans develop into adulthood. And they're going to, of course, raise their kids into being Houston Texans fans. Like turning over a market overnight doesn't happen. But if you put the product there, if you make it accessible to people, 20 minute drive rather than a five hour drive to Dallas, 
then people are just going to show up. People show up to the XFL games. People show up to the arena football league games. People love football. It's the U.S. People love football. And I, I agree with the idea that the mayor threw out there. Football's king in U.S. Football's king in Texas. And if you tell me, like you, with shitty NBA games or shitty MLB games on a Wednesday, if it's cheap, if it's affordable, if it's in my backyard, I'll show up. What else am I doing on a Sunday? Yeah, it's a great point there. And and in terms of your, your buddies over there in Austin and San Antonio getting a team, watch what happens with the Chargers and the Raiders in terms of economic viability, because this is a great experiment of can you sustain an NFL team with no fan base? which it intuitively is like, well, no, you can't possibly do that, right? But then you start thinking of Los Angeles and Las Vegas are major touristy destinations. And you can say Miami is too, but you're not going to Miami for oh, football. Yes, I've said this with Las Vegas when they first got the team. How many people are just going to be out there on bachelor party weekends and just say, screw it, let's go to a Raiders game? And if you're a fan, well, first of all, Los Angeles is, is transplants from everywhere. So like people were like, why are there so many Eagles fans at the Chargers? game. It's like, because there are people from Philadelphia and Los Angeles and people from Minnesota and Los Angeles and people from Jacksonville and Los Angeles and people from Texas and Los Angeles. So that one explains itself. Austin and and San Antonio area is an interesting place because it's growing economically and a bunch of people are moving there. It's, I mean, you live there, you've seen how rent has changed and population totals have changed in Austin just since the pandemic started. (laughs) Yeah. Like, Uh, (laughs) I love you guys that are moving here, but slow it down just a beat. Just just a beat. I, a 40% rent increase over the last two years. Pump the brakes a little. So like this is an example of the fans, the people moving there might not give a shit about football and still you can build a profitable football team because people want to move to Austin, Texas and people want to be around whatever's going yeah. on there. And if you have a solidifying moment, like winning a championship, like a playoff run, Hell, even a star player, you just draft one stud star player that people are like, I got to see this guy play. They buy his jersey. Then suddenly, oh, why do you have a, let's call them the Rangers or something, right? They just named themselves the Texas Rangers. (laughs) How about the Austin Jaguars? Call them the Austin Jaguars. (laughs) (laughs) We almost had the Austin Bills. I I think I would have got behind seeing Josh Allen on Sundays if that would have happened. You could still you could get Joe Burrow from Cincinnati. Cincinnati might build a stadium now because they have a good team. You could go steal Joe Burrow from Cincinnati. You know, I, I wouldn't mind that. You know, I'm a Joey B guy. I, I would embrace Joey B in Austin. Who knows? Expansion team. That might be the best way for Baker to get a job. So the Westlake graduate ends up back in Austin. <laughs> sure. Just try and find that next job at this point. I, I did like it a couple other your teams that I, I just want to circle back to the international cities you mentioned. Yes, obviously, we've learned that Europe, we probably just don't have the technology to make it work. And I kind of obviously hate the idea of you're just taking some random kid at age 22 who graduated from the University of Southern Alabama. And you're saying, by the way, you're deported to London. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we do it with Canada, a, which is Yeah, but not, I think that's a hard lifestyle shift, going across the ocean, being segregated from your family for that amount of time. Uh, we talked about 
the struggles of these guys who get drafted within the U.S. I could only imagine having to go across an ocean and not being able to necessarily be with my family yeah. or have to work on work visas. And I think that's why Mexico City stuff. also probably isn't going to work because of language barrier. Because like at least with at least with England, you have not a language barrier there. I think the language barrier is probably going to be a deterrent in, in moving to Mexico. I, I could see that, although you look at the English speaking rates are going up around the world. And that would include a major tourist destination like Mexico City. And there are some passionate fans. The NFL is smart in saying that there is a passionate fan base for American football in Mexico City. I know that the Raiders got on their high horse thinking that we're, we're Mexico's team because of obviously the large Latino base for the Raiders. But um, clearly the Patriots disagreed when they kicked them around the stadium a couple of years back. Uh, yeah. And obviously the infrastructure needs to improve because we had that game that was canceled between the Rams and Chiefs a few years more back. So Mexico still has some things that they have to overcome. And obviously there's anytime you talk about working with Mexico, you also have to work with the Mexican government, which the Mexican government has their shortcomings that they have to work on as well. <laughs> they're also people. not happy with us right now. They're not they're happy also... with us. We, we got that. But at the same time, if we're giving you guys jobs in your own country and a big multi-million dollar stadium, multi-billion dollar stadium. You kind of have to be a little bit happy about that one. Uh, whether you're happy with the U.S. or you're happy with the NFL, that's tip for tap. But still, it, it would be a great economic boom for the country if they managed to get themselves an NFL team. Toronto makes a lot of sense. And back when the bills were awful, before Josh Allen, before the Josh Allen, Tyrod Taylor era begun, I thought that that was a likely move, especially because the Bills were experimenting with playing games in Toronto. I thought that was them kind of dipping their toes in the water for an eventual move to Toronto, which would be the third largest metropolitan area if it was in the U.S. Yeah, Los Angeles and New York. And that's what we're talking about with Dallas, obviously. The Dallas mayor, again, is saying we're the third largest metro and we're the only one of those metros that doesn't have two teams. Problem is your team The one team you have is so much better than the Jets or Giants, so much better than the Rams and Chargers. They're as big as three NFL teams, even if we don't agree on the success. Yeah, the NFL just went through a triple relocation. So I'm not exactly sure if they're like eager to move like every team that they were fighting for a new stadium with they moved or in the case of Buffalo got a new stadium. So this might be a decade down the road. It's so wild to look up NFL history and how easy moves used to be just, oh, we're just packing things up and leaving in the middle of the night. If you're interested in a documentary on that, ESPN did a 30 for 30 called Al Davis versus the NFL. And literally, so Al Davis took the NFL to court over preventing him from relocating. And he won that court case in 1983. And they show from like 1983 to 1988, there was like seven relocations in the NFL because they're like, wait, the NFL has no restrictions over us moving. Oh, we're going to go to. No. You Arizona. Just gonna- what the um, Clippers owner did and just say, okay, I guess we're moving to Los Angeles and just kind of like strong arming everyone, strong arming a whole league into, okay, we're no longer the San Diego Clippers anymore. Well, the NFL, the the NFL closed that loophole by adding relocation fees a couple of years later. So like, if you want to move your team, you just have to pay instead of like legally trying to stop people from doing it. So it's not the same as it used to be. But yeah, that's why you have like the Colts leaving Baltimore in the middle of the night or the Cardinals leaving St. Louis in the middle of 1984 and all that stuff like it all happened right i'll give a little bit of hope to some cities that we didn't mention but a lot of people always throw out there portland oregon 
is also a fast-growing metro that has been casually thrown bandied about as a NFL relocation because obviously some passionate sports fans in the northwest part of the country, but it's a often ignored part of the country. Portland is, has started to become somewhat of a destination city for a lot of people to travel to. <laughs> They're going to go to Salt Lake City. I mean, that's exactly where the NFL wants to go is Salt the middle Lake of city. Utah. No, they, they won't do it, but it's, it's funny to think about. <laughs> I could see a Salt Lake City because Salt Lake City was one of those cities that was was selected for the AAF a few years back. So they were mm-hmm. trying to test out the football market. I kind of wonder if, again, that's going to be something that the NFL pursues in using these XFL and USFL teams to see how popular football is in respective markets of places they don't currently have an NFL team. Because we've seen Birmingham consistently get a team whenever these new spring leagues come about. Does that mean that Birmingham is a place that the NFL is curious about? I know that they often get overshadowed by the fact that they are in the middle of SEC country, the, they're in the middle of college football country, but I don't think that stuff matters as much anymore. Yeah, especially because college football is national now and the NFL is national where it used to be you could only watch games on your local broadcast. So the NFL didn't even try to move to those areas, but it's different now. But also I think the NFL kind of knows the viability of their markets at this point. And, and they're also learning like television contracts are so huge that the local revenue of games is worth less than it used to be. It's how baseball stadiums could be like a fourth full this year and they're still making record profits. So I think that matters less than it used to be. I'm I'm still going to cape up for San Diego. For these cities that don't have a team, I think it's just a point of pride sometimes to have Mm -hmm. a team because it's like something entertaining to do. I I think just giving people options, coming from being born and raised in New Mexico, where going to a professional sports game was so much of an inconvenience because it would require driving to another state, flying to another state to do. Having a team in your city adds a certain gravitas to your city, even if it's kind of like a superficial thing is, wow, so we're going to Blackwater, Wisconsin, home of the (laughs) Blackwater Jaguars. Yeah, I I agree with you on this point. I think that NFL teams in cities are incredibly cool things, especially in cities that don't have nice shit. Like I'm here in Sacramento. Sacramento is a nice city. It's also it's a downtown that's like a copy and paste of a lot of other downtowns in, in major American cities. Having the Kings is really, really cool in Sacramento. The problem is now that sports leagues have gotten to be so gigantic that local city governments simply can't afford to continue buying publicly funded stadiums for teams. So like, I really want a football team in San Diego because I know it matters a lot to like people I grew up with and especially like people my dad's age. Like it, it means a lot. The Chargers meant something really important to the city. And also if you have to pay a billion dollars of taxpayer money to build a stadium, yeah, it's not worth that much. It shouldn't be worth that to anyone, no matter how much you love a sport. I guess this is a complex argument of how we should decide to use our tax dollars I I think tax dollars should always be used to serve the public. And if the public believes entertainment is a top level priority for them, which in some cities, I would say that that should be a top level priority. In Albuquerque, I have joked that if I ever get into politics, if I ever run for mayor in Albuquerque, I will run on the basis of trying to be the fun mayor. I will go into town with the idea, okay, let's revitalize our bar districts. Let's add more restaurants. Let's try and bring in entertainment stuff, whether that's bands, concerts, uh, movies, sports leagues, whatever can kind of start adding more national attention to our city, which can revitalize the community, not make it feel as 
old and dreary and dying, make it feel vibrant and fun. I, I think it depends what you value as a society. Yes, you, we cannot say, well, shouldn't tax dollars be going to, I don't know, name a disease, name an illness of society. Well, just, maybe people the, maybe say, the, you know, save the, the teachers, illness, pay the whales. Maybe all that the stuff. illness is boredom. Top five. Yeah, things. I mean, look at, look at it, COVID. During the COVID pandemic, how many people's mental health went to shit because they couldn't do stuff or go outside or enjoy these activities, these leisure activities. Sometimes giving people leisure activities, I, I think it's good for the public minutiae. Yes and no. So like the money has to come from somewhere in these situations. And I just want to point out the fact that like income inequality is at its highest levels it's ever been before. There are more people living closer to the poverty line than ever before in a lot of these situations. And, and so I think people get that. But it's also while we're dealing with these things, these multi-layer things that we can't just write a executive order to fix distract me with three hours of a football game. It's the same thing you said at the beginning, like this, this will ultimately devolve into a conversation about where do tax dollars go? And ultimately that's like a lot of what arguments in politics are in America is like, how much should people be taxed and what should we spend that money on is ultimately a lot of conflicts in America right now. And so one of the interesting parts about this is like specifically the three major sports leagues. And we're talking about like baseball, football, and basketball. Those sports leagues have evolved to such a place because of international dollars and because of television contracts and all of this stuff that they've priced out most of the markets that they play in, in terms of like spending money on public financing the way they used to in the 70s and 80s. It's like, well, back in the 70s, you used to pay 35 to 40% of our stadium, or, or you used to pay 60% of our stadium in like the the, the classic case of the, the Miami stadium in 2010. It's like, you can't do that now because like that's basically Buffalo spending $850 million on a $1.4 billion football stadium for the Buffalo Bills. Like the state of New York taxpayers just paid $600 million for that stadium. And you could argue that it's it's going to be good for the state of New York at the same time. I, I don't know how many people in, in New York City are going over to Buffalo to watch a football game. And this is all a, a really interesting minutia of like you've been priced out of the three major sports, maybe a hockey team. Let's start start with a hockey team for Albuquerque. Maybe if the Phoenix Coyotes eventually decide to move, I know that that's been one of those things that's been talked about for years. I've heard the Sacramento Kings talked about as a potential Albuquerque moving team, even after the success in the mid 2000s. Yeah, but they, give me give me your top three cities. That's how we'll close out the segment. Top three cities for Rapid an NFL fire. team: San Diego, Austin, Texas, and who? I will go. Man, this is a tough one. I don't really have a I don't have a last one like in the arsenal right now. Let's go North Dakota. <laughs> or throw Dakota. one in North Dakota. I might put one in East Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> is that uh, is that the Vikings? The Vikings East Dakota? <laughs> East Dakota, probably a university in, of East Dakota that probably had someone go before Texas Longhorn in the NFL draft. Three different Dakotas did have a player drafted before the Longhorns. Mine, Austin, Texas is gonna be the number one. I would love to have an NFL team in my backyard, but even if I can't get it directly in my backyard, I would drive the hour to go to games in San Antonio. So one, two, both in the great state of Texas. And my third is going to be actually a surprise. I'm going to go with our neighbors in the great white north. I'm going to say Toronto. I think Toronto will be a fun NFL city. I thought of a third one that I forgot now that I've had time to think. Orlando, Florida. Orlando, Florida would be fun. They they have a really fun team with UCF. They've already got the stadium built. Orlando, Florida would be fun. And now starts the final quarter. Buckle up. Buckle up. This is the Slump Buster Podcast.
joining us here today, Mo Murphy from the Off the Ball Network and a Miami Heat fan. We've got an Eastern Conference final for the second time in three years between the Miami Heat and the Boston Celtics. We could go all the way back to four times in 10 years or four times in 11 years between these two teams. It's been two of the the premier basketball franchises in the Eastern Conference going back, well, I guess you could say to my lifetime, but still the, the Boston Celtics and the Miami Heat are back again. Similar cores to the teams we saw in the bubble back in 2020. It's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. So Mo, I will defer to you first. The Heat made relatively light work of the Philadelphia 76ers in the second round. Obviously, Joel Embiid was playing through a concussion and missed games one and two, and they had no chance of winning that series. So how are you feeling coming out of the second round here against the Sixers? Well, of course, I have to feel nervous. Like my team that made the Easter Conference Finals, and we're playing a team that I think matches up not only really well, but has the potential to outmatch the Miami Heat uh, in the Boston Celtics. Because I'm a big believer that stars win championships. I'm a big believer that stars kind of make the impact on these series. And I look at it and I'm looking at Jason Tatum. Like that's the guy that when I look at this series, he probably, I would expect for him to be the best player in this series. So when I'm looking at Miami, I need Jimmy Butler to keep it up. But as you've seen, like when he had a superstar performance, it had 40 and he scored 33. Those resulted in losses against the Philadelphia 76ers. So it's kind of a confusing spot that the Miami Heat are in as far as what we need from Jimmy Butler essentially to win this series. So it's like we want Jimmy Butler to show us that superstar power that he potentially has and score 40 or score 35. But I'm looking at he needs to average about 25 to 27 uh, to kind of get us in there. And I think we, we need to worry about our depth. I think that's where this series comes down to because these are two of the deepest teams, not only left in the NBA, but just two of the deepest teams in the NBA period. When you talk about impact, and we saw that with Grant Williams uh, in game seven against Milwaukee, that you never know who's going to step up outside the stars. And so when I'm looking at this Miami Boston series, I guess as opposed to looking at Jimmy or Bam out of bio or the return of Kyle Lowry, I'm looking at Max Struess, Duncan Robinson, Tyler Hero. So those are kind of the guys I'm looking at in this series that are going to play the key to victory for us to ultimately win this series and continue on and have a chance at winning an NBA championship. Juju, how are you feeling after game seven's amazing victory for the Boston Celtics and the Grant Williams, Peyton Pritchard, Marcus Smart, Al Horford, group of guys that that gives Boston the same feel that Miami has of a deep team. Not bad for the fifth best team in the Eastern Conference, huh, Kyle? I said seventh originally. I I backpedaled Mm -hmm. from seventh Mm -hmm. to fifth. Mm -hmm. You are correct. (laughs) You know, I got to bring that today. You've been ragging me all season. And here we are, Eastern Conference. But, you know, we've had this conversation in the past. This is nothing new for this group of guys. They've been to the Eastern Conference. I want to see them do something they haven't done before, make it to the NBA Finals. It's time for Jalen. It's time for Jason. It's time for Al Horford and time for Marcus Smart to finally take that leap together and huge offseason addition, getting Al Horford back in the mix, what he was able to do in that game four victory against Giannis. Obviously, a lot of people remember the dunk and the meme mugging that was going on there. Al was a critical part of this team. You talked about the role players. The role players were amazing in game seven to have Grant Williams knocking down seven three-pointers, looking like a game six Clay Thompson out there was a remarkable sight to see, especially because he started 0 for 4 from the three-point line uh, to start the game. And 
Uh, also, too, Jason, even though it wasn't like a dominant performance, it wasn't anything close to the game six that he had. Uh, he was five for five at one point from the three point line himself. So I don't expect the Celtics to knock down 21 of 55 three point attempts. And in fact, I don't really want them shooting that many three point attempts, but they just kind of like went with what the Bucks gave them. They went with what the defense suggested they should do. I mean, if you're just going to give guys open threes, as long as those guys aren't Derek White or Daniel Thice, I'm okay with Grant Williams taking that shot. I'm okay with Jalen Brown taking that shot. I'm okay with Jason or Al Horford taking that shot. And that's what the Bucks did. Looking at Miami, I will say it, Mo, you you mentioned some of the role players. That's going to be a difference maker for me because I think Miami has a way better bench than the Milwaukee Bucks did because Grayson Allen at one point was unplayable for the Bucks. Bobby Portis didn't give them quite the impact that they were hoping for aside from that offensive rebound in game five. And I think that this is a great matchup for NBA fans entirely. Obviously, you mentioned the history of these teams going at it. A couple of years ago, playoff Jimmy Butler always makes me a little uneasy. But um, as long as the bench of the Celtics, because they got that short rotation, shows up to play, I, I think that they are the favorites going into the series. So Max Struess has been kind of filling the Duncan Robinson role for the Miami Heat. They moved Gabe Vincent into the starting lineup during the playoffs here. How do you feel about how Spo, and this is over to you, Mo, how do you feel about how Spolster's managed the rotation for the Miami Heat going into the playoffs this year? Well, with not being an NBA head coach, I have to trust one of the greatest head coaches of all time. Essentially, he's been voted, you know, one of the top 15 coaches of all time, which is an honor when you think about all the coaches that have come through the coaching carousel of the NBA uh, throughout the NBA history. But you question it at first because we paid Duncan Robinson so much money, right? But when you look at Duncan Robinson has turned himself into a guy, we paid him what it costs to get a catch-and-shoot guy, a guy who could get hot at any night and determine the outcome of an NBA game, especially in the regular season. But Max Struess has been essentially the same guy who plays a little bit of defense in for a lot cheaper price, but you're not looking at the price tag when you're in the NBA playoffs, but you look at Duncan Robinson, it's like, if he's not hitting three-point shots, he's essentially useless out there on the court because he's not a defender. Um, He doesn't really give you any other aspect. He's not a ball handler. So it's like, if Duncan Robinson isn't hitting jump shots, he's useless on the court, and Max Struess has found a way to find himself to be useful, whether he's hitting jump shots or he's playing defense, and that's kind of the thing about the Miami Heat, is that that's a team they've always been, especially the post-LeBron era, post-Dwayne Wade era, essentially. They're guys who, they find these undrafted free agents or these unsought-after free agents that nobody wants, or these guys who were injured, and we bring them back because we find a way to plug them into the, you know, like the Victor Oladipo's, and then we get the Gabe Vincent and the Max Struces. And so I'm looking at Miami and I'm, it's like, I love what Max Struce has done and we're picking up his player option. He's going to cost us $1.5 million next year. For what he's done for the Miami Heat this year, $1.5 million to get that same production, if not hopefully elevate from next year, $1.5 million is his is a bargain. The only thing I look at Miami is like, regardless of the outcome of the Eastern Conference Finals, they may have some questions and some decisions to make as far as Duncan Robinson with as much as they paid him. Like, they essentially could, and, and you know, I, I've talked about this at length, they could have to trade 
Duncan Robinson for essentially nothing. Because of his price tag and because of the production they got from him, they might have to move on from him because they could look and be like, this is a bad contract, but you're not going to get a lot from Duncan Robinson. So I think regardless of the outcome of this series, Miami is going to go into the offseason and be like, we might have to give up Duncan Robinson, but it might cost us either bad contracts that we could shed off or just draft picks and we give up Duncan Robinson for essentially nothing to shed off that bad contract that a lot of fans think that we signed with Duncan Robinson. Send Duncan to Sacramento. I want Duncan to, to just come play for the Kings, just play 30 meaningless minutes every At night. This that, point, that's... Send them to Sacramento. They could give us their two second round picks for the next two years. And it'd be one of those, like, that's all it's going to cost to get Duncan Robinson because it's like he showed that if he's not hitting jump shots, he doesn't have a lot of value for a team who's playing for a championship. So you know you're not going to get a lot for him, but you also, in return, you have Max Struess that you're going to pay $1.5 million. So I would be okay with that. Juju, I'm throwing it over to you with the number one defense in the NBA since January 1st. Uh, they they did a pretty good job of containing Giannis and just letting the Bucks shoot for a good portion of the series. And I know that's like hindsight 2020 because the Bucks were like four for 30 from the three-point line in the last game of that series. So how do you feel the defensive matchup is going to work for, for the Boston Celtics in this series? Who's guarding Jimmy? Do they switch on Bam out of bio because Bam hasn't been super aggressive shooting in the first couple games of the series? What do they do with PJ Tucker just sitting out there and shooting corner threes? What's the game plan for Boston? I I think that they just need to play their style of basketball. And I I know that's a kind of lame answer, but it's true. They they do such a great job of switching on guys regardless of matchup, because even a guy like a small guard like Derek White or Marcus Smart is still able to match up on a guy like Giannis on a guy like Kevin Durant. They don't get as focused up on the size mismatches Hell, you, you, you see some of the smaller guys like Peyton Pritchard going on Brooke Lopez, which is not necessarily something you want in a series, but that's the type of defense that the Celtics have been able to play. They don't care about assignment. They're going to give you the same level of effort on every play. The things that kind of concern me, um, and I, I just saw this in Celtics post game. Marcus Smart, uh, he left that game in a walking boot. So that's something to kind of monitor heading into this Tuesday night game. And losing the defensive player of the year, that's going to critically impact your defense. And that's not to say we still don't know the status of Robert Williams, who didn't play the last uh, three, four games of the Milwaukee series. He didn't look great in the Milwaukee series. Obviously, he missed a month with that knee. Whenever Rob was in there jumping around high energy, uh, blocking shots, that's what really helped the Celtics take off around January, Rob's development. And then he missed a month and he wasn't quite the same player coming into that Milwaukee series. So I am intrigued to see if he's healthy and if he's healthy, is he going to be the old Rob Williams, the one that we saw in January, February, and March? And is Marcus healthy? Because if Marcus isn't there, then that, that kind of hurts you on the perimeter. Marcus is obviously arguably the best and the NBA voters said so the best perimeter defender in the NBA. Drew Holiday might have some exception with that, but Either way, hey, Eastern Conference Finals, we, we got the win there. Uh, as far as those matchups, I, I remember the 2020 bubble season. I think a rookie, Tyler Hero, that was his rookie season, right, Mo? I'm not going crazy. That was Tyler Hero's rookie season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Him going crazy in that series was a big part of the story. Uh, Jimmy averaged 27 against uh, Philadelphia. Unlike the previous two series, they don't have one player that they want to exclusively focus their efforts on. Uh, against the Nets, 
it was easy. Okay, we want to shut down Kevin Durant. We want to make Kevin Durant's life extremely hard. Against the Bucks. you know who you need to stop. It's that guy who was averaging 40 points in a four-game stretch against you that put up just insane statistics. I mean, even in a seven-game series loss, I got to give that guy some love. Giannis was insane. Like, we, we held him, but held kind of being a loose definition. Against them, he, you just have so many different variables, so many guys that can hurt you. Again, like the fact that they're, I believe, the number one three-point shooting team in the league uh, tells you that they could burn you from the perimeter. So again, Marcus Smart being hurt, if he is hurt, that, that scares me going into this one. Well, you mentioned Tyler Hero, so I'll swing that over to Mo as the next point here. Hero's shooting 23% from the three-point line in the playoffs so far. That number got sent way down because I think he shot like 20% from the three-point line against the Philadelphia 76ers. Obviously, Miami was able to overcompensate for that with the Jimmy Butler performances and Philadelphia's lack of offensive production. And Bam Adebayo has only taken like nine shots per game during the, the Philadelphia series, so Offensively, Miami's not at their best right now. It's not like it's like code red, like they're struggling. But at the same time, how do you feel about going up against the Boston defense? This is such an evenly matched series. When you look at both teams in the if I was to talk about Boston's keys to victory, I would essentially turn it around and say the same thing for Miami, right? You're looking at Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. You're looking at Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo and probably Tyler Hero. So then you turn around and you're looking at Robert Williams. Like these two teams are so like, if you put them across from each other, they're so identical. The only thing that separates them is age. Jason Tatum is in his twenties. Jimmy Butler's in his thirties. Jalen Brown is in his twenties. Bam Adebayo is also in his twenties. But then you look at like Kyle Lowry's in his thirties, who he's supposed to come back. But Marcus Smart is in his twenties. Like these are such identical teams that this makes this matchup to look forward to so tough because it's going to come down to the Grant Williams game. It's going to come down to the Tyler Hero game. It's going to come down to can Omer Yurtsevin give us some quality minutes late in the game when, he, when he's got to step in for Bam Adebayo. And it's like, it's crazy to sound, but with being so evenly matched, like it's going to be when Emi Udoka goes in his bag and really tests how deep his team is. And Eric Spolster goes in his bag and he tests how deep his team is. That's what this series is going to come down to. And I think when teams are evenly matched, these games are won late in the first, leading into the second quarter, and late in the third, leading into the fourth quarter. Because that's when your bench comes in and that's where games can get separated is three to four minutes left in the first quarter, leading into what, three to four minutes into the second quarter and vice versa with the third quarter. Three to four minutes left in the third quarter, leading into three to four minutes. Those last eight minutes are won by your superstars, but if your bench can do a good enough job in that eight-minute stretch heading from end of first into the second, into third, into the fourth, I think this is where in those coaching adjustments, I think this is where that game could be won, but I am looking at Tyler Hero. He ain't got to shoot 50 percent from the three-point line but you gotta do better than 23 percent like you're supposed to be a shooter you're supposed to be the guy that could create his own shot we've seen it uh at times we saw it against boston two years ago in the bubble like we saw how great of a series that was but we saw that with what tyler hero can do so we kind of need not necessarily consistent play like that from tyler hero but we do need the flashes of like in the bubble and throughout the regular season with dealing with all the injuries that we've dealt with, Tyler Hero's consistent play. We do need that in that series because that's what it's going to come down to. It's not your number one or your number two. It's going to come down for both teams from three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 
that's how deep these teams are. You're going to be looking at three through eight on one side and three through eight on the other side. Whoever outperforms each other is going to win that game night in and night out. And so it's going to come through options three through eight from every series. I think that's who comes down to end up winning this series. Juju, talk about number one for the Boston Celtics, Jason Tatum, because game six, if if Boston goes on a deep run this year, game six against the Bucs is going to be one of those games that we look back on as like a turning point of his career. So how do you feel about the performances of Jason Tatum? He was very quiet in game seven, but he didn't need to be loud when Grant Williams was taking 17 three-pointers. I think that Jason's main development this season isn't so much as a superstar, but as a playmaker, his ability to get the ball in the hands of his teammates. If he recognized that Grant was going off, okay, I'm going to swing the ball out to Grant for that corner three. If it's a Jalen night, I'm going to make it a Jalen night. But if I need to be the guy, I'm going to be the guy. And that's what he did in game six, because he knew he had to basically match Giannis step for step. And I do appreciate that he has that in his bag, but I appreciate more that he recognizes that he doesn't have to do that every single game, that he does have teammates that can pick him up. And that's going to be one of the big stories of this series. Who are going to be the role players that step up throughout? And if need be, Jason, can he give you that 20-point game? Can he give you that 30-point game? And hell, can he give you that 40-point game? Because we obviously remember he had a miserable, and I mean miserable, game three just a series ago. Like We were talking about him, is he going to be one of those guys that's Always the bridesmaid, never the bride when it comes to the postseason. We recognize how good he is. We recognize how great he is, that next step, that two-way player. But at the same time, he can have a 9.10 point dud like he did in game three. And that game just reminds you, kind of like brings you back down to earth that he is still a young player and he still has a ways to go. He's not just going to be unstoppable, unguardable every single night. And I think the Miami Heat matchup is going to give him tough shots, going to give him some tough looks. I I think that where it's going to be a difference is, again, can he get the ball in the right places? Recognize if Al's having a good night, like a versatile big like Al, I think is going to be important in this series. What kind of strategy will Ime use? Will he go small? Will he go big? Going small was the turning point in this Milwaukee series when he started unveiling the lineup that featured Derek White and Marcus Smart, the three-guard lineup. That was probably one of the biggest uh, keys to victory in that Milwaukee series. So I I am intrigued to see how that matches plays. But if he's at least giving you a 20 to 30 points a night, uh, you're going to be fine with Jason. You're going to be happy with Jason. But I'd also like to see those assists anywhere between 5 and 10. All right, Mo, I will defer to you first and foremost. Do you have any predictions, thoughts of how the series is going to go down? How are you feeling? So now you put it in the bias cap. So I'm going to put my bias cap on and I'm going to say the heat in seven. I have to. And I, I expect Juju to say the same, you know, whether it's six or seven, I expect Juju to essentially say the same about his team. I'm going to say the heat in seven. I think this is a hard fought battle. I think this takes you back to the early two thousands. As far as the style of basketball that's played, I think there's a like two games where neither team scores 100 points. I mean, these are two of the best, literally the best defensive team that we've seen for, what, five months at this point in the Boston Celtics and in the playoffs, arguably the two best defensive teams that we've seen in the playoffs. So I'm going to say the Heat in seven. I literally think this takes us back to like the early to mid-2000s, the 90s style of play where everything comes down to defense, but it's modern day because we're not going to see those 70-point you know, playoff games or 79 to 74, but it'll more be 99 to 94. I think this is going to be a great series. I think everybody's going to turn regardless of who the winner is. I'm picking the heat. 
Of course, I'm going to rock with my team. But I think everybody's going to turn away from this series and be like, this is what great basketball looks like. And, and from both sides, like I expect Boston to play amazing. I expect Miami to play amazing on both sides of the floor. So I'm going to take, like I said, I'm going to take the heat in seven. But I literally think the casual fan will fall back in love with basketball because these two teams are literally the epitome of what guys our age have fell in love with while watching basketball growing up in the first place. Yeah, I'm going to take the heat in seven, but this going to be such a hard fall. I could almost see this being an instant classic series as a whole with a couple true instant classic games that we're having to rewatch the next day because that's how close, how tight it is, and that's how much I respect that Boston could have Miami's number. Juju? Well, this is the type of series that changes or makes narratives. If the Celtics win and Jason Tatum could get to his first NBA finals, then that lays the groundwork for him to be a top five player for the next 10 years. If the Heat mm-hmm. advance, then this justifies their 2020 finals appearance. This makes that 2020 finals appearance look less like a bubble aberration and a legitimizing of their efforts in 2020 and including their efforts in 2022. This is going to be a hard fought series. And one thing uh, gushing about my team a little bit here, I respect that they feared no team. They feared no superstar and they feared no deer because they did not back down towards the end of the season, like the Milwaukee bucks to try and get themselves a cushier matchup. They said, okay, Brooklyn, fine, bring it four game sweep, get out of here. Then they welcomed in the 2021 champion Milwaukee bucks and said, this is going to be a hard-fought series. But other than one game, I don't think Milwaukee really had a great win in that series. They basically could have knocked them out at any point. You could have told me the Celtics could have won in six. You could have told me the Celtics could have won in five. Just a couple of mishaps at the free-throw line were the reasons that it turned into a seven-game series. Now looking against the Miami Heat, and this is an opportunity for revenge uh, for the Celtics. And revenge just tastes so good because you look at 2021, get eliminated by the Nets. You look at 2019, get eliminated by the Bucks. Who eliminated the Celtics in 2020? The Miami Heat. So this is an opportunity for redemption for the Celtics. First-year head coach, Anemi Adoka. A lot of turnover in the front office. Brad Stevens taking the reins as GM. As far as prediction, long story short, TLDR, I'm going to say Celtics in seven. Mo, you called it. You caught me. I, I got to go with my team, but I'm going to hedge on the fact that playoff Jimmy scares me. Playoff Jimmy does. I know I'm going to see a lot of those highlights of Bam's block on Jason a couple of years ago as well. I, I respect the Heat team. They didn't get the number one seed by accident. They're a well-coached, fundamental team. And this is going to be the closest matchup I think the Celtics will have had in the NBA playoffs. Well, all right, then. We've got Heat. We've got Celtics. And I guess we'll have to enjoy the series because I'm not going to make a prediction for this one. Oh, anyway, no, 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 you so. cop out. Nope. <laughs> you you, you got to give it. us. We're, we're mixed Kyle. right now. So uh, let's go, Kyle. Let me see. Where's a, where's a coin let's here? If, it, if, it's, if it's heads, I'll go Heat. If it's tails, I'll go Celtics. Tails. I got tails. What did I say? Is that Celtics? Yep, that's Celtics. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll go Celtics in seven then. No, 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 no Kyle. Kyle, Kyle stay, stay picking the Heat. Stay picking the Heat. Okay. So, Get so my here's Celtics all postseason. Let, let's keep that narrative. <laughs> Yes, but I've already acknowledged that I was wrong about the Celtics. I've doubled down on Giannis and the Bucks. They whoa, still whoa, whoa, think whoa. Of- changing your pick though, right? You can only be wrong twice. 
Oh, but I was just wrong about the Celtics all season. I said that originally they were the seventh best team in the East, and then I said they were either four or five. And if you wanted to argue between them and the Heat, I was willing to hear them out. And then they beat Brooklyn and they beat the Bucks without Chris Middleton, but they handled the series really well. Like this series is so evenly matched, especially because of the Celtics offense being better than the middle of the road team that they were for most of the season. The fact that Tatum and Brown are able to generate shots on their own and because of that, the respect that that, you know, Jason Tatum being able to shoot from anywhere creates shots for Horford and Pritchard and Grant Williams and guys who are just sitting in the corner the same way the Heat do it with PJ Tucker and Struess and Gabe Vincent and all those guys. Like it's a really efficient offense that Boston's starting to run. The problem is like eventually those guys aren't going to be able to shoot as well in every single game. Now they got big Grant Williams production, but they'll have a four for 20 game as a team at some point coming up in that series. So in that way, like they're so evenly matched. And like you said, the teams are constructed very similarly where you have a guy who can give you offense like uh, Jason Tatum and like Jimmy Butler, where they can go get you a basket to kill a run and slow things down for the other team. While Bam Adebayo against Al Horford is an interesting matchup because you'd think Bam Adebayo could impose his will upon Al Horford. And yet Bam hasn't really been that offensive player. And when the Heat played the Celtics in 2020, it was like one game Bam had a 30 point triple double and one game Tyler Hero had 36 and 10. And that's how Miami ended up advancing. They could capture that magic again. It's just like the Heat were this great exception in all of NBA history in 2020, where you don't usually see a team win with like four different stars, each having a game mixed in between. So altogether, they're very similar teams. And I'm just going to call it a toss up at that point. I know Vegas is favoring the Celtics. So like I, I trust Vegas is smarter than me in doing basketball analysis there. But I just think this one's a toss up, man. I'm just really excited to watch it happen. And Boston, I guess, according to Vegas, is the better team. But I I think both of those teams could win this series, especially because Miami's going to get four home games mixed in there. And it, it, man, it's going to be a really fun series. That's the best I can say there. I'm, I'm picking the Celtics, but that's just because the coin decided it. Like this, this game is a toss up. This it's whole series is a toss up. It's literally that close where it's like, if I wasn't a Heat fan, I would have did the same thing. I would have flipped the coin and been like, yeah. All right. I said, heads Boston. Okay, go Boston. Like, they're literally going to do the toss up. You know, they're going to do the, and they're going to look at each other and be like, we are so familiar. It almost doesn't make sense. Even from a coaching standpoint, there's not as great as Eric Spolstra is. I think we're we're witnessing a great coach in Ime Yudoka. Like, I don't think this is going to be an anomaly. I think he's going to continue to coach his team the way he's going to coach his team. I think they're going to continuously be constructed and build around Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and move on. And obviously, five years from now, all those players aren't going to be there, but Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown will be. Ime Yudoka will be. And so when you look at it, you're like, it's literally like, the Spider-Man meme where they're looking at each other in the mirror. Like, I literally think this is that. And that's why even if the Celtics won in six or seven, because, you know, certain games could go away where either team was supposed to win and the other team won. This game is six or seven, I think, guaranteed, regardless of which way it goes. And I'll be OK with the outcome because I think regardless of what team wins, I think we'll get an exciting NBA finals matchup regardless. I won't be. I, I might cry myself to sleep at night. 
I'll be okay if Miami loses, but I will be rooting against Boston. But I'll just look at it like as much as I love my team, I still love watching great basketball and knowing that I'll be able to witness Jason Tatum in the NBA finals and Jalen Brown. I know that the next series of productivity will be great. So that's why I won't be fully upset because as much as I love my team, I still love to watch the NBA finals and genuinely enjoy it. And I know I'd be able to enjoy it watching Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown go to work against whether it's Phoenix or Dallas or or Golden State. As much as this series means to me, it it definitely means a ton to the star Jason Tatum because on JJ Riddick's podcast, he made it a point to say that if there's any year that burns in his mind the most, it's the bubble year where they had an opportunity to beat the Miami Heat and they failed to capitalize. So I, I think as much as this pains me to this day, the fact that it pains the number one star on the Boston Celtics, who I think are the better team, I think that that's why I am picking the Celtics to win in this series. Yeah, things can change mid-series. There's all kinds of stuff that could get thrown up. And and obviously in 2020, it was the Bam Adebayo block on Jason Tatum. And in game one of, of Nets and Celtics, like the Celtics winning game one changed the whole tune of the series. There, there are little things in between the series that can change all of that stuff. But anyway, Slump Busters, hope you enjoyed this preview. I hope you enjoy all of the content that's going to come out of this amazing, amazing two weeks of basketball leading up to the finals. Make sure to give a like. Make sure to give a follow. Mo, where can people find you as well for all of the work that you're doing and more content as the Heat go through the conference finals? Yeah, you can follow me at Mo underscore Cheese 15 on Twitter at Up the Flames Pod on Instagram. And you can also subscribe to Up the Flames Pod on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Just make sure you type in Up in Flames. Um, Apple, Spotify, 